the hard shoulder. With Nissan. Number one for petrol in Ireland. Number one for electric. Nissan. Innovation that excites. This is News Talk. I'm delighted to welcome author Emma Donoghue to the News Talk studios for the Thursday interview. Emma has a new book out entitled Learned by Heart and she's here to talk to us about her own life and experience and identity as to whether she's Irish or Canadian or Irish-Canadian or whatever else it might be. Can I start with the book though before we talk about you, Emma? Because you have chosen to bite off what I would imagine is a very challenging set of challenges in this book. You're writing about real people you're inferring fictional um, accounts into their lives. You're writing about a time period that is several hundred years ago. And you're writing about somebody who you have previously described as your hero. That's a, an interesting... I like a challenge. What can I say? <laughs> and actually, you know, my last one was about early medieval monks. So, so early 19th century is no bother compared with the strangeness of life in the 7th century. So... Um, and what did it mean in research terms? Because you had to wade through It meant a huge amount of, of research. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you feel a kind of an ethical obligation to get it right. I'm, I'm, my main focus in this novel is, um, well, there's two focuses. One is Anne Lister, who's this extraordinary Yorkshire woman who kept this diary, which is now on the UNESCO World Heritage List. It's this five million word diary, which describes with great frankness and honesty everything going on around her, including the many women she had affairs with. She made up a secret code for the, for those sections of the diary. So I'm writing about her at 14, but the point of view of the novel is the young woman she fell for, um, who was a, a an orphan heiress from Madras in India. She's called Eliza Rain, and she is so utterly forgotten and obscure and had a very long and tragic life and very little is known about her origins. So I really felt I was trying to write a sort of biography, a novel in one, and even just working out the basic facts, you know, finding out, you know, finding the ship on which she was sent off to England at the age of six, um, all that took a huge amount of work. And I should add, two further factors to the challenge that you set yourself. You include racial identity, because she is, of course, to, to some degree biracial, and you include mental illness, because much of what she's talking about is accounts in her own writings from her period in an asylum. Absolutely. And um, I, I I just did a huge amount of research, I suppose. For instance, we don't know what her care was like in the particular asylum she went into in her 20s, but I read about lots of others around her. And so I know that they had this kind of radical new model of fairly gentle care. It was a lot of cups of tea and playing on the piano and going for little walks rather than, just you know, whips and chains. This was all a big improvement. Um, and similarly, I don't know a lot about her first six years in India, but I know that the gigantic cohort she was part of, which is the children of the East India Company. This was, it was like working for McDonald's. It was the biggest corporation in the world. Um, these Englishmen went out to India and made pucks of money, um, basically running India for the British Empire. And they had loads and loads of children in, in very settled relationships with Indian women. But then often the kids would be sometimes abandoned out there, sometimes brought to England, cut off from their mothers, as in the case of Eliza Rain. So I, I was able to fill in the, the massive gaps in her story with research into people whose lives were like hers. So I suppose I research in all directions. I research kind of, you know, things nearer to me in history that can give me some insight into what it was like then. But equally, I research the lives around those I'm, I'm interested in. I, I know this may, I don't mean this pejoratively, why? Is it not easier to sit down and say, I have a blank piece of paper, I'll imagine whatever I like? You would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I often envy a writer like, say, Sarah Waters, who just makes up brilliant plots, sets them in the past. So, you know, she's being realistic about, you know, 
when was the penny post invented, but she's not having to be realistic about exactly what day somebody got on a ship. So why do I make this work for myself? All I can say is that the the, the kind of gritty little details of the past are hugely stimulating to me. They are better than what I could make up. So, for instance, the school that Anne and Eliza met and fell in love at in, in New York in 1805, um, Somebody who was, lots of people on Twitter who I reached out to helped me with this book, sort of they are enthusiasts of Anne Lister and and all her women. And so, you know, total strangers would send me transcriptions from from letters or analyses of wills or passenger lists from ships. So um, uh, this particular Irish genealogist, San Ricken, um, she helped me over the course of a year. And one of the things she found me was a letter that a real teacher from their school had sent to the Irish playwright Arthur Murphy describing her new job. And this teacher says things like, yeah, it's a big ramshackle building. There's a pig living in one of the classrooms downstairs. And, you know, I would not have thought to invent that pig. And if I'd been just inventing a school, it probably would have been a bit more like schools we're familiar with. I would not have thought of the pig. So the pig is a huge help to my imagination. You write it from the perspective, as you say, of Eliza Rain. Your interest in Anne Lister, you, you described her in an interview as having the sexual ethics of a bonobo. Why is she, despite that, your hero? <laughs> she told it like it was. She, you know, in, in an era of great reserve and social taboos and rules, she would go home and write down everything from the coal mines she was running to the travel she wanted to do to her bowel movements to how many miles she'd walked that day to you know how much she'd managed to lift the petticoats of the latest girl she was chasing. She was just astonishing. And it has frank. to be said, the first <laughs> and last of those are particularly remarkable given the period in question. For a woman to be running a coal mine, for a woman to be openly gay was extraordinary. She was uh, such a, a breaker of rules and especially gender rules. I mean, you know, I, I really... Uh, Anne Lister nowadays is seen as a sort of a spiritual ancestor, not just by lots of lesbians, but by lots of trans people and non-binary people, because she had this astonishingly questioning and almost playful sense of her identity. In her diary, she'd say things like, I think nature was in an odd mood the day she made me. Or she'd say, um, I might be the connecting link between the sexes. You know, this kind of analysis and sort of marvelling at the oddity of yourself, it's, it's more like a teenager on TikTok today than something from Jane Austen's era. So she's just so ahead of her time in being fascinated by her own peculiarities and she was a very easy character to write in this book. But as you say, I ended up adopting the point of view of Eliza Rain because as a young biracial woman in not just in England but in Yorkshire where most faces were pasty white Eliza Rain just saw things from a vantage point that others wouldn't have and she'd have picked up on all sorts of tiny little unspoken things in their society. For instance, in their social circle, nobody mentions race at all. Nobody mentions India. Everyone just talks as if Eliza Rain is is, is a 100% white. But then there's a moment when Eliza fights with her English guardians and suddenly there's a little flurry of letters in their social circle spilling out the racism, you know, just excoriating her for her black blood and her black heart. And so clearly all this hostility was there just under the surface, just waiting for the day Eliza would put a foot wrong. And I found that the originality of that perspective just irresistible. Let me ask you the question you must have been asked 175,000 times when you talked about Learn by Heart. The similarities between young women coming to terms with her sexuality in a repressive environment in Yorkshire in the 1800s and your own experience of coming to terms with your own sexuality in what was a relatively conservative Ireland. 
Not far apart at all. Let's just say it was an easy mental leap, especially as I was 14, you know, at, at uh, Muckers Park School in Donnybrook when I fell for a girl. And I have to say, it, it was not hard to, to remember that experience and think how might this have been at a boarding school in York in 1805. Very similar feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting good marks, I've plenty of friends, but maybe everybody would hate me if they knew this, this terrible secret. And yet, of course, love... Love feels extraordinary as well as feeling scary. So I was really trying to capture in a timeless way that feeling of I've fallen in love and this is wrecking my life, but it's also it's also opening a new world to me. You know, the kind of revelatory aspects of love, even if you're afraid. And, you know, say Ireland must have changed a lot. I know it has, but I'm sure people can still be absolutely shocked when they find themselves falling in love in a way that doesn't feel like it's something they can easily tell their parents. And for you, was it revelatory? It was, as you say, it was revelatory. Was it defining? Did you think, ah, I am this? Or did you think I happen to be in love with this person, but it may be transitory and I may kick with the other foot? I I think in my diary, I kept a diary myself, uh, sort of 14 to 19. I think what I wrote down first was, I may may be platonically bisexual. And then about a week (laughs) later, I wrote, I'm not sure it's platonic. And then I wrote, I'm not sure I'm bisexual. (laughs) So fairly soon it was defining. I was like, ah, yes, it's girls for me. Yes. But the interesting thing is that I think it helped make me a writer because being a writer is all about empathy and imagination and seeing past the social norms. And I think, um, you know, I was I was growing up very comfortably in Mount Mary and getting good marks in school. You know, there was nothing there to shake me. And so finding one area in which I was the other, the freak, the monster, the outcast, was really, really good for me because it sort of opened my eyes to all those who sort of fall between the cracks or don't fit the norms. Did it make you feel that those terms? It, it really did because it's funny, without anyone ever saying it, I just knew that, you know, in Ireland, even like living with a man outside of marriage was was something people were losing their jobs for. So I just absolutely knew that being gay made me the the unwanted, like the scum. And I felt I couldn't tell anyone about it until I got to be in university. I mean, I'm only 53, but really 30 years ago, Ireland was unrecognisably conservative. Even in the leafy suburbs of South Dublin. I mean, the way yeah, that you, you that, would have thought... This is not something people were cool about. Not a bit. Um, so so I didn't didn't come out at all until I was in UCD. And when I did, um, people like put nasty graffiti about me on the toilet walls. Um uh, yeah, I was accused of being an AIDS spreader, for instance. And I remember thinking, like, <laughs> these young fools, if they seriously think that I am their main, I'm their main threat in terms of AIDS, you know, they're, they're lacking a bit of biological information. Um, so, so yeah, these were very different times. And, and so, as you say, making that leap to early 19th century um, uh, England, not at all a stretch. I know um, you laugh about it now. That must be awful at the time. Yeah, it was. It was. And, you know, I still I still get letters um, from people living in very conservative situations saying, I love your books. Your books make me feel stronger. And, you know, one of these days I'll come out to my family. And sometimes these people are my age, you know. So so it can often seem if you're living in a sort of liberal situation or working in the media, it can feel like, oh, the world has transformed. No bother being gay these days. But in so many situations, there still is a big a big bother being being gay. You talked about Muckers Park and then UCD. There was a period in the middle in New York, wasn't there? We went for one year to New York, yeah, and I found that a wonderful sort of eye-opener to be around, you know, people who weren't white, for instance, (laughs) and um, people who were divorced. That seemed even more exotic, (laughs) you know. 
And I just remember that year in kind of uh, in, in hypercolor. It's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when suddenly they turn the color on. You know, I remember yellow taxis and red watermelon and just everything more brightly coloured. And, and what took the family to New York? Oh, my dad got a job there at NYU and he, he brought um, three of the eight kids and, and my mum over for the first year. Um, and it's funny, um, I, I the, the attitude in the school there was so um, sort of encouraging to young people. It was all about, oh, you are young adults, you know, here are your rights and your confidence and so on. Um, that I, I think um, if I'd stayed in the American system, I would have, my head would just have swelled with my sense of my own rights. But in fact, they, they brought me back and plunged we, me we into Catholic <laughs> education. And I'm still pretty confident. So I might in fact have been <laughs> unbearably cocky if I'd stayed in the American system. How were the three chosen? Was it oh, by just lot? the youngest three. No, no, right. the rest were adults. So the rest kept the family home and then uh, as one who was a student and two of us who were still school kids came into New York for the year. But again, it's hugely helpful to a writer to be suddenly plunged into a different setting and to realise that all the things you think of as just how life is are actually social norms specific to one time and place. So, you know, every time I've written historical fiction, in a way, I've drawn on that experience of like, whoa, I'm in, we're not in Kansas anymore. At what point did you realise you were a writer? I was certainly writing poems at seven and they gave me such a thrill. You know, I found the experience really... You started with poetry. Yeah, yeah. And well, poems are they're short and so they feel manageable. You know, you can like get one done in an hour and um, feel like I've, 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 I've finished something, whereas novels just go on and on. You know, there's... There's always a moment in the middle of writing a novel where I just think, I can't see the other side and yet I've waded so far in, there's no turning back. <laughs> Why did I ever choose this? Who would ever want to I'm in this, this novel so far stepped. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so um, I, I, I love when I do readings now, you know, I, I, I meet the odd sort of fervent fan who says, I read everything of yours. And I think, oh my God, everything. Like they follow me through all my twists and turns and changes of interest. And it's so encouraging because the next time I'm sitting there over the computer thinking, who'd want this? I think, there's that person I met the other night. And she reads everything of mine. <laughs> well, this goes back to a thing you said earlier that I just want to touch on briefly. Anne Lister's diaries, you said five million words of them. You didn't read all of them, did you? No, no, not okay, all. Fine. Not all. Luckily, you can, um, they, they're not all published now because the, you know, the scandalous content meant that no university press has ever picked them up and published them in multiple volumes the way they should have been published. So um, the fans have got in on the act. It's, it's the only example I know where the fans of a television show, in this case, Sally Wainwright's wonderful Gentleman Jack show for BBC, the fans signed up in their hundreds uh, to transcribe the diaries page by page for the Yorkshire Archive Service. Five million words of yeah, them. Yeah, so they've been doing it in teams. And my problem was for this book, I needed a particular bunch of letters, which were not published at all. And I reached out and 14 fans volunteered and they transcribed Eliza and Anne's letters for me. So I'd log on to this database during COVID in the lockdowns and there'd be a new letter from Eliza, you know, as if it was reaching me two centuries late. It was thrilling. And I'm so grateful. This novel is really partly crowdsourced, you know. The number of people who gave me substantial help that I couldn't have written the novel without, you know, I'm incredibly grateful. And it's the only example I know where, where fandom is not just kind of waiting around to be given a new episode of something, but they're actually helping bring the archives out into the light. And what an amazing thing for the fans themselves, because to be a fan of an author and then see your contribu- contribution reflected back in their work. Absolutely. Must be amazing. Yeah, yeah. So at seven, you realise that you are a writer, albeit a poet, but a writer nonetheless. At what point do you realise that you're a successful writer? Um, I suppose at about 22, um, I, I, I sold two novels to Penguin, my first two novels. 
Um, nobody would take my first novel and I was despairing but, but my agent said go ahead and write a second and I thought if they don't want one why would they want two and she said they want to see that a writer has legs that you've got more than one book in you you know that you're you're worth betting on for the long haul and she was absolutely right so she sold my first two novels together and I remember just running around the house I lived in a very shabby housing cooperative in Cambridge going like I'm going to be a writer and, and then after that I thought maybe I don't need to get a real job Maybe I could just do this, you know. <laughs> and I have to say that sense of glee and that feeling of having got away with something has never left me, you know. So I have the same feeling of like, how amazing I'm getting to spend my life making stuff up and even getting other people to share in my delusions, you know. How significant then in that continuing arc was Room? You know, it didn't make a huge difference to me because I was writing full-time anyway from the age of about 23. Did so, people not fling pots of money at you and bring you to red carpets and all that? They did, but money is actually not the bit that makes a difference. Um, if you're getting well, to, to quote Terry Wogan, it helps when you go shopping. It's lovely, it's lovely, but my tastes were formed in thriftier times, so I still will, you know, shop in charity shops or whatever. What Room did was it, get me, it got me a bigger audience for every book since. I don't mean bigger than Room, but I mean bigger than it would have been. So it probably helped keep my career really... Um, uh, you know, alive and growing. Uh, and it certainly has drawn more attention to my work than would have been otherwise. So it's been absolutely great, but that's still not a huge, big, substantial difference. I mean, getting to write full time is, is the real luxury, I think. And what Room definitely did was open the doors of the film world to me, because that's a world that can be very hard to break into. Um, so getting to write the script for Room and then and then the wonder and being involved in film projects, that's been a, a thrilling sort of new development uh, just in the last maybe 13 years. Does the knowledge of potential conversion into screenplay inform your novel writing? It or the... should not, because if you're, I remember reading The Da Vinci Code, um, you know, I only stooped to it because I was breastfeeding at the time. <laughs> it was a suitable novel for <laughs> multitasking on. And in it, I think he, ref- he he describes the main character as looking like Tom Hanks. And I thought, OK, you're just trying to make a film, you know, by writing a book t- that will get turned into a film. So, no, I don't think you should ever think film when you're writing a book. I write a, a novel if that is the form that will suit the story I have to tell best. And I love the psychological detail and the immersion in a book and the way you get to create every word of it yourself and build this world. I then, as soon as the book is finished, sometimes think like, ah, this could work on film too. But that's a a, a secondary question. You mentioned breastfeeding. How many kids do you have? Two. There are 16 and 19 now. At what point did you, because I go back to what you said about um, your realisation of your sexuality and the, the pejorative adjectives that you applied to some of your feeling around it. At what point did you realise that family and open happiness was a possibility? Well, I always knew happiness was a possibility, but no, I didn't think the, the kids would, would be happening. Um, but probably by about my 20s, I was hearing about other lesbian couples who were managing to have children. Um, and, um, you know, I, I um, moved to Canada and again, I was sort of seeing all around me that it was possible. So um, the the major obstacle was Chris was, um, you know, who I've been with for um, coming up on 30 years now. Chris was like, no way, I don't want kids. <laughs> so I don't remember any social obstacles to it. It was more like it took me seven years to persuade her. And I tell this story because, you know, the happy ending is more or less that the second Finn was born. Chris was just converted to the absolute joys of motherhood. And she said, we must make him a sibling. <laughs> so, yes, we have two, Finn and Una. And... Um, I have to say, again, I have this great feeling of having got away with something, you know, that, that it, you know, uh, choosing to, 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 to accept the fact that I was gay didn't mean having to do without kids um, the way I thought it was going to. So um, I have to say, um, 
you know, when, when I was first pregnant, writers would sidle up to me at book festivals and stuff and they would say, every baby costs you a book. Uh, and I, I, did, I would sort of flinch at this, but it's been the opposite. Um, I've had a bit less time to write, but I've had way more to write about. In, in my case, especially as I didn't have a huge amount of life experience in terms of, of jobs or anything, um, the kids have been, they've paid off so well in terms of content. <laughs> and they've been What's the point of having of kids if you kind. can't put them to well, work? Well, you know, I have to say, and they turn up in, in many different forms and they're quite proud of inspiring many of my characters. Yeah. The, the new book, Learned by Heart, it is uh, uh, both a, a love story and a, a story of sort of coming of age and a, a story of, of great losses. Um, a remarkable piece of work. The author is Emma Donoghue. Emma, thank you very much for coming in. It's been a treat. Thank you. And that's about it for us on The Hard Shoulder this evening. Big thank you to The Hard Shoulder team. They'll be having me back against their will possibly tomorrow at four. Until then, from all of us here, bye-bye. 